Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Philip Ewing, the National Security Editor for National Public Radio. Phil has been in that position for just about a year and a half, but has had a long history of reporting about military and defense issues for Politico.com, Military.com, and the Navy Times. Phil gives us his reporter's insight into the National Security Council, President Trump's proposed military budget, the investigations surrounding Russia, and ISIS. I know it seems like ages ago that uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster was appointed National Security Advisor, but it really hasn't been that long ago. Uh, ass- assess that appointment, both uh, politically and, and strategically. Well, it solved a political problem for the White House because McMaster was widely respected inside the national security establishment in Washington. He's been around for a long time. He's a distinguished and decorated battlefield commander from the first and second Gulf Wars, or I should say Iraq Wars. And he's one of the top intellectuals in the army or was before his appointment. And so people were very comforted by the fact that this White House had been kind of a circus and there had been a lot of uh, upheaval about Flynn and his management and who was getting power and getting access to the president. And McMaster's appointment has taken a lot of that away. He is doing his own thing inside the National Security Council. We understand that he's bringing in a lot of his own people and being the steady hand at the tiller that President Trump really needed him to be. The national security consequences of his appointment are kind of still TBD. If he's bringing in a lot of his own people, that was a stumbling block early, right? That was was that part of the negotiation of him taking the position? I think so. Yes, and you're right. Uh, Trump's first choice to replace the first National Security Advisor, General Flynn, was a former Navy Vice Admiral, Robert Harward, who had left uh, the military after being Deputy Commander of U.S. Central Command and then went to work for the big defense and aerospace giant Lockheed Martin. And Harward, according to people who know him, both had some family concerns because he would have had to relocate his wife and family and likely given up a lot of the earning power he was making in his retirement, but also because I don't know if the White House was willing to give him the assurances that he wanted that he would actually be in charge of who was working on the National Security Council and have the kind of 
power and access to the president that he felt he needed. And having had to wave off with one of his replacements, Trump and his advisors evidently thought we need to give Lieutenant General McMaster the assurances that he needs for him to be able to come on and have this calming effect that we need for political consumption inside of Washington. Even before the resignation of General Flynn, uh, there was the controversy of the appointment of chief political strategist Steve Bannon to the National Security Council. Uh, talk about the dynamic between McMaster and and Bannon as you observe it or as you uh, uh, sense it to be. We saw a good example of that dynamic in the past week when President Trump gave his big speech to a joint session of Congress. It's the thing that in other times is called the State of the Union, but is not because it's the first one right. that he is delivering as president. McMaster, we know, uh, NPR knows from people who are familiar with the National Security Council, it does not like the term radical Islamic terrorism. He says it's counterproductive because it loops together the billion or more mostly peaceful, mostly law-abiding Muslims around the world together with a very small minority of extremists who are violent and in the case of the Islamic State of ice uh, of Iraq and Syria and Iraq and or I should say Iraq and Syria you know are guilty of all these horrific crimes but it was a big issue during the campaign for Trump to call out what he called the timidity or weak political correctness of Democrats both his predecessor Barack Obama and also his opponent Hillary Clinton who were unwilling to use that what they considered an important phrase. And as we heard in the speech, Trump did use it. He he stopped and enunciated radical Islamic terror, which a lot of people in Washington saw as a triumph for the Bannon wing of the White House, because that was considered good politics for them to message to their supporters that they were going to walk the talk that they talked during the campaign and make good on a lot of those promises. It's largely a stylistic thing, and I don't know that anyone can appreciate what practical effect it has on the conduct of policy or the relationship between the United States and its allies or these terror groups, but for political purposes, it showed that Trump and Bannon were thinking of that with the top of their mind and less with the national security hat that McMaster wears as national security advisor. Was I wrong, Phil, or did it seem like the president, in delivering his speech, actually put a special emphasis on those words? He appeared to do that, yes. And I think he is very cognizant of all the discussions about this that take place in Washington. We know he's a voracious consumer of news, especially on television. And if he saw discussions on Fox or CNN beforehand about whether he would use it or this byplay between McMaster and Bannon because there were some accounts of it that appeared in the press in the New York Times, he wanted to respond and say, I know what you people are talking about out there. I'm very much in the mix, and here is my answer, which was why he stopped and paused and enunciated that phrase in the way that he did. It's been reported that uh, Lieutenant General McMaster uh, is okay with the term radical Islamist terrorism as opposed to radical Islamic terrorism. What's the difference? The difference is between Islam or what you consider the mainline mainstream religion as practiced by people from North Africa to Southeast Asia in all kinds of different countries and climes, and Islamism, which is a more aggressive, radical, and extreme 
form in in many cases that is associated with uh, everything from the conservative codes and practices of a place like Saudi Arabia to, in its most virulent and extreme forms, the ideology and actions of a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And the issue is, if you say it quickly or you're out in the general audience, um, it doesn't really appreciate, it doesn't really make sense that there's that big of a difference when, as you say, for people who are studying this very closely, they can make those distinctions. Um, Trump believes that it's good politics and that he is being truthful or seeming truthful when he uses these terms because his predecessor, Barack Obama, and his predecessor, George W. Bush, took pains after their own terrorist attacks or during their own crises to say the U.S. is not at war with Islam and that Muslims or the, the Church of Islam is not an enemy of the United States. Instead, it's these extremists or these radicals. Trump's advisors, um, including Bannon, and at the time, uh, Lieutenant General Flynn, former former General Flynn, took the opposite view. They said the U.S. is taking on Islam and that these Muslim countries in the Middle East do need to act on their own and try and fight this from within in a way that uh, outsiders have argued is, is at best not constructive. And McMaster is a guy who became famous in the Second Iraq War when he was deployed with a unit to the city of Tel Afar in Iraq. And he would go out and walk around and meet with the city fathers and go to the souk and have his soldiers really enmesh themselves in the culture and understand what was taking place. And I think that one of the people, one of the things that people associate with him is his willingness to get into the detail and really master a subject matter as he did there. And his view, his takeaway from that experience was you can't paint everyone with the same brush. You have to make sure you understand people in that circumstance or in the context of terrorism before you begin to formulate policy that affects them in, in very important ways. He's viewed, or at least reportedly, uh, an intellectual, also uh, a person who speaks truth to power, being at least uh, a sense of being rebuffed on this uh, first uh, battle between him and the politics. Uh, how do you think that will set with him? And, and is, is this a person that can do that for a long period of time? That is the test for H.R. McMaster and so many other people in the Trump administration and what everyone in Washington is watching as the initial uh, buffeting of the first few weeks and months settles down to the degree that it ever does is how those relationships work out and steady themselves out over the long term. And no one knows the answer to that question right now. Also in the news recently, and it seems like years ago, the news is moving so quickly, uh, the proposed budget I know you've spent a career uh, covering the military in whole or in part. Uh, the president's suggesting a 10% increase, a $54 billion increase in the military budget. Not very many specifics, in, but it's supposed to come from cuts in other federal agencies. Uh, talk about that concept. Is that one doable? It could be doable if Congress agreed with it, and that's another question to which nobody has an answer right now. What Trump has talked about at a very high level is looking outside the defense portion of the budget for 
changes and cuts that could pay for the increase that he has called for. And the initial dilemma when you try and do the math is you can eliminate entire cabinet departments, the EPA, the State Department, or others, and not get to the $54 billion that he wants to add to the top line of the Defense Department as a part of this first budget that he's proposing uh, in Washington. And the question is, can or will the White House even try to do that? Or are they just interested more in the optics? Trump is a, Trump is a showman, famously. He loves the headlines. He loves to be in the mix. And to the degree that that is all they are interested in and all they care about, they've arguably already had a political win because they had a whole splash last week about Trump calling for a big spending increase. And then he went to an aircraft carrier in Virginia this week for a big... Um, presentation about how much he supports the military and how he wants to grow the size of the Navy. And if voters kind of only care that he says he's doing those things, that may be all he has to do. And the actual difficult and boring nitty gritty follow up inside of Washington could be less important since he knows and Republicans who lead Congress know that the budget he's proposing likely can't pass. Um, it's very difficult to do this kind of work because of the constituencies involved with all these other departments. And that's why during the campaign, you heard Rick Perry and um, the other Republicans saying they would eliminate entire cabinet departments or cut X billion from the federal budget. But Congress very seldom makes those kinds of major changes. It really hasn't since the year 2011 when it passed the Budget Control Act, which has capped federal spending since then. And so not only would it have to agree to the kind of new spending that Trump is calling for, it would have to act separately to waive or lift or do something else with these caps on spending that are still in force. And by the time all that boring process takes place, most people are not going to be paying attention. And so we may get to a year from now and have basically have the status quo or if Republicans decide uh, that this is a train they want to get on board and they're willing to take the risk to show that in the first year of Trump's presidency they were making major changes, uh, that could change things. But the trick is having 60 votes in the Senate um, because that's where Democrats have their strongest chance to hold these things up. And I think it's very likely that uh, Senator McConnell and Speaker Paul Ryan will be picking their shots very carefully as they go ahead because the politics are very good for them. Republicans... Uh, really want to please the base, uh, which holds the president in such high esteem. And they may try and ride the wave as much as possible without actually doing much in terms of practical legislating. When he made his announcement, President Trump uh, talked about rebuilding the depleted military. And that was a, a catchphrase throughout his his campaign at, as well. How does that go over with the military? It doesn't go over well at all. And in fact, during the campaign, before they kind of learned to stop doing this, you would hear top leaders get into the mix because Trump, who was then a candidate, would say these things and reporters inside the Pentagon would say, well, what do you think about what this guy is describing about your capabilities? And uh, at the time, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Paul Selva, who's an Air Force general, said, no, it's, that's just not the case. Our force isn't depleted. It's the most powerful in the world. But with the Defense Department and the scale of the American military, all extremes can be true sometimes. And at the same time, you have a Marine Corps, for example, where uh, service officials have said 80% or something of their squadrons don't have enough ready aircraft to deploy or train. You have brand new, highly capable F-35B Lightning II fighters coming online. And so when you talk about something as big and as 
uh, vast in terms of scale as the Defense Department, you can pick the slice of time and the place that you want to talk about and be correct. Uh, the Air Force, for example, over Syria, even as we speak, is attacking the Islamic State with B-52 bombers that have flown in every major conflict since uh, Vietnam. The newest one in the force was built in 1964. And they've been upgraded. They have modern electronics. They can strike targets with incredible precision. They can track an individual person on the ground if they want to and hit him with a bomb, even though they're these 50 and older um 50-year and older aircraft. And so it's difficult to put that on a bumper sticker, but Trump is very good at messaging with the kernel of truth, which people perceive that could you have a newer force? Yes. Could you have nicer, more expensive, more shiny toys for the military? Absolutely. But uh, what the Pentagon officials you talk to say is they do pretty well with the ones that they have. Do you have a clue from your perspective what the $54 billion is going for? Obviously, in his initial announcement, there were no specifics. We don't have any indication how he would spend that money. And right now, the White House Office of Management and Budget, which is head by, headed by its new boss, Mick Mulvaney, who is a conservative uh, member of the House from South Carolina, is working on those details. And the interesting thing about it is, it could have huge effects if, for example, the White House decided to devote all that money to building warships because the president made a big campaign promise about increasing the size of the Navy. But the politics of defense spending in Washington are very fraught inside the family because if the other military services perceive that they are getting left out in the cold, they have ways of making things very unpleasant for the White House and whichever one they perceive is benefiting. Their advocates... Uh, their vendors, their constituents can all come out and make things very difficult, which is why there's this dilemma to doing real strategic plus-ups in the way that people sometimes want, because it's just too hard politically. So if you took that $54 billion and divided it up three ways for the three military departments inside the Defense Department, the Department of the Army, the Department of the Air Force, and the Department of the Navy, which includes the Marine Corps, that works out to about $18 billion per service, which in our terms as normal people is an unimaginable sum, but it's only about as much money as the Navy already gets per year to build warships, about $18 billion. And so if all you do is water every plant in your garden with the same amount, nothing is going to do very well. The question is, will they decide to and then try to focus on favorite plants, if you like, to favor with this additional support? And right now, we just don't know yet. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other Bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. 
This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Just as a quick aside, the carrier, I believe that President Trump was on this week uh, giving his remarks. Uh, That's been uh, uh, controversial as well, right? Started in 2005, I believe. It's a very controversial program, and it is itself kind of a poster child for what can go wrong with defense spending or why just because you're spending X billion dollars on the Navy in this case, you're not going to get X result necessarily. The USS Gerald R. Ford is the first of a new kind of aircraft carrier, different from the ones the Navy operates today. It has new uh, mechanisms, new machines for launching and recovering aircraft. It has new radar. It has new systems internally. And the Navy is very excited about what that will offer someday, but it has meant all kinds of problems and delays for getting the ship finished and finally putting it out to sea so that it can deploy. And... um, the interesting thing about it is it shows you can spend as much as you want on a lot of these programs, but because it's so difficult and so costly and so time-consuming to get to a good result, um, defense spending doesn't necessarily buy you what you think it's going to buy. It's like generating electricity. You need uh, 100 megawatts at the power plant to get 30 megawatts down to the grid in Cleveland or whatever it happens to be because a lot of it is just lost in terms of uh, waste heat and it it can't survive the transmission and uh, spending in the Pentagon budget works a lot of the same way. That's another reason why that $54 billion sounds like a lot and it's a good headline number because it's roughly 10% of what the base was last year, but it, you can't ever guarantee that spending that much more money will necessarily get you X number more troops or X number more airplanes just because things don't work that way. Let's shift gears, if we could, to the various investigations between the Trump campaign and and Russia and Russia's involvement with the uh, American electoral process. We've heard reports this week that the Obama administration was leaving sort of breadcrumbs of information uh, around to be picked up and and followed. Uh, We... uh, now know that the attorney general has recused himself. From a national security point of view, which is your specialty, Phil, what should we be looking at as the average person out here in in middle America? The most important thing to look for will be the result, because a lot of the politics and headlines that are coming out of Washington today are just about process. What will the committees in Congress include? What will they exclude? Will they have subpoena power? Will the intelligence agencies be within the scope of these investigations? They're arguing over the rules of this game in a way that you might for your pickup basketball before you start playing. But what really everyone is going to be caring about is what was the score at the end of the game? And we're still many months away from that. And this is a situation where the politics for Republicans are a little bit fraught because they know from the report released by the intelligence community during the final days of the Obama presidency that it has concluded basically uh, unanimously that the Russians staged a big 
cyber and public information campaign during the 2016 presidential race. That's not in dispute from a kind of a real-world perspective. The issue is how much of a rearguard action can Republicans fight so that that's the limit of what they investigate as opposed to uncovering new things and giving them the imprimatur of officialdom that are today appearing from anonymous sources in the Washington Post and the New York Times. In other words, it's one thing for a newspaper to quote anonymous national security officials saying, for example, the intelligence community detected meetings between people in the Trump camp and Russians during the campaign. It's quite another for the House Intelligence Committee or the Senate Armed Services Committee to come out and say that. And that's why Republicans are saying, we would like this to be about what the intelligence community has basically already concluded, that the Russians, yes, were involved, that they put out all this disinformation, that they stole this material from Democrats and leaked it, and what Democrats, to the degree they can, as minority members in both houses, really want is to substantiate and verify these press reports about what could be illicit connection between Trump's camp and the Russians. And right now, nobody knows which side is going to win and what these investigations ultimately will bear up. Uh, Attorney General Sessions, who you mentioned a second ago, who recused himself from this effort inside the executive branch, the Justice Department and the FBI, um, said not to read anything into his decision as to whether there is or is not some kind of probe. But it's very clear just from context clues that the feds are looking into this and um, Nothing makes people in Washington more nervous than knowing the FBI is doing an investigation without knowing exactly what it has found or what the parameters and the scope of that investigation is. Now, help me out with a clarification here. The the legislation enabling a special prosecutor or an independent counsel, as it became called uh, later, has lapsed, and there is no authority for a special prosecutor that we hear calls for. Is that correct? I believe that is correct in Congress, yes. And so that's another political game being played between Democrats and Republicans. People in this world, I imagine, have very long memories and think back to the experience of Bill Clinton's presidency when the Office of the Independent Counsel, as it then was, created a huge scandal for him and led to his impeachment by the House over the false answers, you could say, that he gave as a part of the congressional investigations into his relationships with um, the White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. I doubt that Republicans will agree to pass a bill that reinstates a special counsel or some kind of um, independent investigator. But if things get hot enough for them after this Jeff Sessions recusal, or there are more headlines in the press about these connections between Trump's campaign or Trump's camp and Russians, it may be difficult for the Justice Department and Republicans not to go along with something that's just like a one-time deal. And uh, bring somebody in informally, perhaps, without the support of an undergirding bill who could do this investigation in a way that all parties would find credible. As I, as I understand it, the acting deputy attorney general, who now is uh, probably the lead person in, in this uh, investigation, does have the power to appoint a special counsel, not a special prosecutor or an independent counsel, but a special counsel within the Justice Department with some degree of independence, that would be, as as you were saying, more the one-shot approach, correct? I believe that's so, yes. And um, people in our world who watch these things 
believe that whatever forces are behind the release of this information to the press, and there is clearly an intelligent um, actor behind it, because, for example, this week uh, they let the president have just about exactly 24 hours of good headlines and public praise before releasing uh, the subsequent information to the Washington Post and the New York Times, which meant that all of a sudden on Thursday morning that had completely taken over and sucked up all the oxygen in the room um, and didn't really let Trump have a second day of victory with his trip to the aircraft carrier. I think uh, those people, if they don't feel satisfied by the investigative measures the government is willing to take, both in the executive and legislative branches, could just wind up releasing everything they have because it's it's very likely you mentioned earlier the New York Times story about the outgoing Obama administration seeding intelligence details about connections between the Trump camp and the Russians I think it's very likely that unless uh, official investigations are started that can bear out and bring to the public those things that whoever's leaking this information believes are there, we could see it anyway. And that's another reason why Republicans are trying to calibrate their moves very carefully, because if they launch a process that they feel is reliable and that they c- can control to their own purposes, they might be able to re- restrict or at least control the narrative in a way that helps them and could help Trump if this gets um, any worse. Last quick question on on this topic. Uh, Obviously, the diversion from the White House is that uh, all of this is the fault of illegal leakage from uh, officers in the government. Uh, Do you get a sense that that's playing well out in the country? Uh, I don't, but, but maybe you have a better source. That's a great point. I don't know how it's playing out in the country, but I know that the White House is very attuned to doing political things and addressing Americans in a very calculated way. And one of the dilemmas for my colleagues in Washington in covering the president is many of his supporters view only the things that he says and nothing else. And so there's a big effort in the news game these days to do fact checks or to annotate his comments or his tweets and give people more information or correct the things that he says um, that are not correct. And I don't know how much of that makes its way into the consciousness of a lot of people. And so if the White House, as it did successfully during the campaign, can continue to calculate that when the president speaks, either on camera or through his social networks, his supporters see that and nothing else, they very likely have nothing to worry about. And in fact, they condition a lot of people who supported the president during the campaign to just dismiss all the reports they see in the press because, as Trump says, they're illegal leaks. Uh, The intelligence communities are out to get him, as he argues, and that could be a very effective tool. But I just don't know how many people are in that camp and how many people are outside of it and seeing what the New York Times and what the Wall Street Journal and what the Washington Post are reporting and having that change their perception of um, of Trump and the president. The truest test for that will be probably next year in the midterms in 2018, when Democrats will try and have to put back together the shattered pieces of their hopes and dreams from last year, 2016, and challenge Trump and the Republicans in the midterms. We've talked about McMaster. We've talked about the budget. We've talked about the ongoing investigations. You're in tune with all things national security, what might be on the horizon that we should pay attention to in the next few weeks or months? 
One big story to watch will be what President Trump and Defense Secretary Mattis and their aides decide to do about the war against ISIS, because Trump has actually bought himself and his generals a great deal of political cover through his aggressive rhetoric on the campaign about knocking the hell out of them and um, going against ISIS in a way that was much more bare knuckles and aggressive than his predecessor uh, Obama ever talked about it, which means that unlike Obama, who never acknowledged American troops were in combat or played these kind of cute games with people about what American forces were doing in Iraq and Syria, Trump appears to have support based on his election for a much more robust strategy, which could include the deployment of ground troops potentially to Syria or to Iraq as part of the mopping up operations there. That's something that Obama was never willing to do because he was always cognizant about the quagmire that resulted from the 2003 invasion of Iraq and which endures today from the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan. But if Trump thinks that he can make a decisive effect there and uh, succeed against ISIS with a big American presence, he has bought himself the trade space to do that. And I don't know that many people are paying attention to it just because there are so many other stories bubbling out and there's a new headline every day about Trump in the White House and um, Trump and Russia and so forth. But the Syria strategy, the ISIS strategy could get very interesting and very different from what we saw under Obama, depending on what they decide. At the same time, that's a, a high-risk move, is it not? Because it's sort of now become his war as opposed to predecessors' wars. It would be a very high-risk move. So the, the potential rewards are if you send uh, American combat forces into Syria and they can kind of take the reins from the indigenous forces there today and have a good battlefield success against ISIS, you stamp out the last concentration of power that it has in its capital of Raqqa and um, are able to declare victory. And you can have television pictures of American forces in the streets of Raqqa liberating it uh, from the terror army that's controlled it since, uh, I believe, 2013, let's say. Right. But the risk is just as great. That means more Americans are in danger. It means that if you're supporting those troops with aggressive airstrikes, that more Syrian civilians could be hurt. And it also creates a dilemma that uh, George W. Bush encountered in Iraq after the successful invasion there. What comes next? And if you have those American forces in northern Syria, in Raqqa, um, are they going to be directing traffic and adjudicating disputes at the city council and pulling up at the souk and handing out chickens to people and, and doing all the things that American forces did in Iraq? And, and repairing which, the infrastructure that's destroyed. Correct. correct. And, uh, or do you just pull them out and leave a power vacuum in the way that critics, including Trump, said Obama left in Iraq in 2011. And I don't know that anyone in the national security infrastructure is even thinking that far ahead. But if they do decide to go with a more aggressive and larger American presence in Syria, um, it puts us right back in that same spot again. And I don't know if anyone knows what would come after it. Phil, thank you so much for your time and, and your expertise. And I hope as national security issues evolve over the next uh, weeks and months that we can check back in with you. Yeah, I'd love to uh, anytime. Thank you. Today, we've talked with Philip Ewing, the national security editor for National Public Radio, about current issues surrounding the Trump administration. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. 
We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 